Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. My name's Jim Zub, the writer of Conan the Barbarian, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Milnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into this episode, I want to tell you all at home, well, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on Benzar social medias. Safely. First off, go on Facebook and Twitter at... The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there. Also, give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash... The Marvelists. And on top of that, follow us individually on social media. Just chronicle our observations and just all that other good stuff. Myself, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster and on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. And there's only one place in the whole worldwide interwebs that you can find Eddie Wilson, and that is on Instagram at Eddie9193. And on top of that, you can listen to this show on a wide variety of listening and streaming platforms, including the one you're probably listening to right now. we got to tell you, that was a solid pick for you to use right now. We, we just can't believe it. Yes. And also, you look really great. You lost a lot of weight. We're really happy for you. Or you gained weight, but we have no judgment for that. We believe in you. We, we think you can do it. Anyway, those listening platforms include iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, among many others that you can wrangle an RSS feed. But remember, when you're on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe, and share, and be ever so inclined to give us a five-star review. We like five stars. We end up using those. We, they're not stars in the thing we're, I'm thinking of, but they're like the crowns in Duolingo. We could just level up and learn another language. I don't know where I'm going with huh? that. But, exactly, don't worry, Eddie, I'm just rambling now. But what we want to do in the meantime is introduce our special guest on this very sword and sorceress kind of episode. Eddie, we are joined with Jim Zub, writer at Marvel, writer at Dynamite, writer at IDW, and a ton of other places, and he's just a phenomenal writer, and we are glad to be joined with him right now. Jim, good afternoon, because it's afternoon. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. Welcome. I hope we're all in the time, same time zone, at least, right? I think so. We're in the 3 o'clock hour by our recording time. That is correct. All um, right. As well. Good deal. Okay. So, Jim, it's a very standard question, but how did you get your start in the field of comics? Um, so, it's a, I won't go into the long and, and sorted version of it, but it, is, um, it, it was sort of a, a backdoor kind of entry to the industry where as much as I grew up as a comic book fan and I loved them and read them, collect them, and the whole 10 yards, I never really imagined that I would work in comics. My original intent was to work in animation, because um, when I was a kid and I read a lot of Marvel stuff, um, you know, I thought of New York and sometimes L.A. as the places where people made comics. There was a handful of, you know, brilliant British people who were making comics. And I know there were some Canadian comic creators as well, but I just didn't really attach that idea of, oh, I could be one of those people. And so for me, my background ended up being in animation I worked in classical, kind of traditional animation, did some TV stuff for quite a while. 
and then um, found myself working at a company called the Udon Studio. And so the Udon Studio does all kinds of design work for animation. They do a lot of illustration and, and um, advertising artwork and design, but they also do uh, comic book stuff. And so they were doing quite a few projects at that point for, for Marvel. They were working on a, a book at the time called Agent X. They were doing another one called Signal uh, that was being published by Marvel. And through them, I, um, I started to go to comic book conventions more. I started to kind of get an under-the-hood the kind of education in how the comic book business worked. You know, years before that, I had done my own little webcomic online, and I had made some friends in that sphere. But again, it didn't feel like that was necessarily a, this is my path to, to publishing or, or things like that. But slowly but surely, the more I went to conventions, the more I kind of rekindled my love for the comic book business and wanting to get back to the roots of, of telling stories. And the comp of medium is so amazing for that, where you can, you know, with just you and a small creative team, sometimes even just an individual can make their own uh, storytelling from scratch. And, and when I compared that to animation and the kind of extensive staffing that you need to put together, even a short film, just comics feels like a really visceral medium. You can get those ideas out. You can really get closer to the audience. And uh, it really rekindled my love for it and, and got me rolling. Um, I wouldn't get really good traction in terms of starting to get regular gigs in the business until 2009, 2010. Uh, I launched a book at Image called Skull Kickers, and that was this sword and sorcery uh, action comedy. And it, it started to do really well. Image was in an amazing spot at that point. Uh, Chew and Morning Glories and a bunch of other creator-owned books had come out and done very well in, in and around that time. And The Walking Dead TV show was in development. And so people were really, really um, looking for the next kind of creator-owned hit. And so I launched Skull Kickers into that market. It was something a little bit different. And people finally kind of saw me as a writer. They saw me as someone who had stories to tell. And the longer that that series went on, the more kind of opportunities came my way. Um, I did a couple uh, Street Fighter stories for Udon, and then the first kind of regular monthly um, kind of commercial writing gig I got was doing Pathfinder for Dynamite Comics. Uh, they were launching this comic series based on the tabletop role-playing game. I had done some work in uh, role-playing games like artwork. I knew some of the people over at Paizo. They really liked the Skull Kickers comic and uh, the people at Dynamite liked me as well and it just all sort of hooked together to do uh, that series and that was really a proving ground for me both in terms of putting out a monthly book having that kind of ensemble cast of characters and and really building up my skills as a as a writer over the course of it so in regards to also just the sword and sorcery aspect one of the Little-known facts about you is back in 2003, you actually did a colorist job on a Conan the Barbarian comic in for Dark Horse Comics. And That's one of the true. things that interests me is how did that come about? What and what are like some of the key things a colorist should do to really stand that's a, out? That's a really uh, interesting question. I wasn't expecting. Yeah. So one of the first gigs I did at the Udon Studio, they were hired to recolor a bunch of the classic Conan stories that were being reprinted by Dark Horse. Uh, Dark Horse had acquired the license for Conan the Barbarian. 
um, and they were going through all the archives of the original issues and reprinting them in these uh, collections they called the Chronicles of Conan. And so I was one of a group of colorists that were working on those those issues. And I was a huge Conan fan back from when I was a kid. And so it was a real thrill to me to be able to, to recolor some of those stories and try and bridge the gap between the modern kind of look of, of comics, but also not lose what made those stories so special in the first place. Uh, you know, a colorist job is more than just, it, it, if anything, it's so important to the final look of the book because where your eye is directed, what kind of impression or feel you're going to have for the artwork, the atmosphere, the texture, the lighting, um, the mood is so intrinsic in the color that's being put on those pages. And the colorist is one of the last people in the, the creative team to work on a particular page. And they have a huge impact on how the reader, you know, takes in that material. I'm and just, so, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just thinking, Jim, in terms of the transition and, you know, updating it sort of kind of, but paying homage to the way it was originally done. You're talking a different type of, I think, paper quality also to deal with. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the difficulties they find now, and I've been seeing a lot of examples of this recently, is they'll take the original color codes and they'll want to do these archive editions of the old comics with digital coloring on them. The problem is, is that the saturation of, say, a blue or a red or a green when it's hitting the newsprint and being absorbed by it, it creates a desaturated, more blended tone. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, the colorist knew that their work was not going to be as vibrant once it was printed on newsprint. And so when they do these new archival editions, they'll use the original color palettes or codes, and on the glossy, very white paper, it looks quite garish, and it looks really harsh. And so people have it in their heads that, oh, comics are these, you know, overly saturated, vibrant, bucket-fill kind of <laughs> colors. And the truth is they're not. A lot of the older comics, if you look at them, the palettes in many cases were built specifically to, to, to kind of fade a little bit with the paper stock that they were using. One of the things I wish they would do is compensate for that, that you would run sort of a batch process on these new editions and desaturate them slightly and you know pull down the contrast commensurately so that the books look better than the originals, you know, cleaner, crisper in terms of the print quality, but you're not losing the actual look and feel of those colors, you know. Is it a matter of being a time-consuming procedure, or is there a um, significant cost to do it, you know, that way? I mean, I don't work in the collections division. I don't think there is. I think it's honestly, I don't know that, that it's a priority. I think that the simple answer is they just say, oh, you know, there's the color, use the same color. And I... <sighs> It sounds weird to say they need to be educated, but I think it's showing really distinct examples of here's what it looked like on the printed page. Don't just go to the original color, you know, markup. Look at the actual finished, you know, printed product and compare it. You've got a digital file now, so you're going to have crisp line work as long as you've archived that properly. Now it's a matter of trying to present it in the strongest light possible. And it is time-consuming in the broader sense that there's hundreds and hundreds of pages. But if you find a batch process and you say, oh, in order to compensate for this look, we need to desaturate. I'm just making up the numbers. You know, desaturate by 18%, lower the contrast by 22% or whatever. You can set up in Photoshop something called an action 
and then you can run it on an entire folder of files and it'll do all of it in the background for you. So I don't think it's necessarily, it's, it's time consuming in the sense of someone has to do it up front, but once you've figured out a process for it, I think it would be much more automated. Um, I would love to see that kind of thing because you see these beautiful hardcovers sometimes of some of these collections and then I'll open them up and it's like the colors are blasting my eyeballs out because they're way too oversaturated. Mm -hmm. Now, going back over to your work over at Dynamite, one of the titles mm -hmm. you had worked on is Pathfinder. And I'm not, myself, I'm not familiar with Pathfinder. However, I'm interested. It's based on the whole sword and sorcery kind of thing to it. So first off, what is Pathfinder and how did you see yourself? How did you wind up on the title? So Pathfinder is a tabletop role-playing game, very much uh, in the vein of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, not to go into too much detail, but originally Paizo, the company that created Pathfinder, was publishing material for Dungeons and Dragons. They ended up splitting off and doing their own line of uh, products and games called Pathfinder. It's become really popular, um, and like D&D, I think has seen a huge resurgence in recent years as people have found a lot of nostalgia for playing games with their friends and building their own stories. So as once again at the Udon studio, we were doing all kinds of different projects. Every almost week to week, we were having different projects coming in the door. And one of the projects we do over and over again was artwork for role-playing game books. We do artwork for um, fantasy magazines and all kinds of things like that. And Paizo was one of the companies we did quite a bit of work with. So when I started my own fantasy comic with Skull Kickers, I sent copies of it to my friends over at Paizo. They really liked it. And the guy in charge there literally said, man, if we ever do a Pathfinder comic, you should, you should be involved. And I said, be my pleasure. Um, almost a year to the day after we had that conversation, uh, Eric Mona, that guy called me up and said, you know, we've signed a license with Dynamite. We want to do a Pathfinder comic. They've asked us if you know, there's anyone we want to work with, and you're the top of my list. So it was a real, you know, vote of confidence in the work that I had been doing. And uh, it was a chance to kind of take the storytelling ingredients that they have as part of their game and form it into a cohesive narrative for these specific characters. And that we were going to have this ongoing adventure story in the vein of, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or any kind of what they call an ongoing campaign of, of fantasy adventure. Now, in regards to Pathfinder, what were some of the things you really enjoyed about working on that title? Um, it was a really cool chance to take the feel that you have when you play um, a tabletop role-playing game and to put it onto the page. So I don't know if either of you have played tabletop games or D&D or Pathfinder or any of these games. But there, um, it, it's a matter of you, you know, one person at the table is the game master or dungeon master, and they're in charge of the narrative. They're describing to you the places that you are going and the people you're interacting with, and you're playing the role of a character, and we are going to collectively make a story together. And I don't know where it's going to go, even if I'm the dungeon master, and you don't know where it's going to go as the player, but collectively we're going to throw our ideas into it as the you know, each encounter is being played through. We're rolling dice to figure out if things happen the way we want or if things fail. And there's um, an improvisational quality to it that's really joyous. You know, getting together with your friends and, and hanging out and watching a movie is one thing, but 
it's almost like making a movie, you know, like we are all into this, we're all doing this thing. And I think that the reason why we've seen that resurgence in, in recent years is because people want to spend that kind of quality time with the people they care about. They want to make things and have fun and collaborate. And, um, you know, giving that quality to the comic, this feeling that these adventurers are making spur of the moment decisions or that they're caught off guard by, you know, the, the danger and the action that's happening to them in the story. That's very true to the game when you play it. And I wanted that feel to come through on the comic page that these characters weren't, they weren't the destined heroes that everything was going to go their way or they were going to fulfill some glorious prophecy. Instead, they were just sort of struggling to survive in this world full of magical monsters and, and trouble, you know, forming all around them. I got to say, Jim, you, the way you described that makes me interested in taking this up because I've not, uh, you know, maybe uh, the time that I grew up, it was not something I found myself drifting towards. Dungeons and Dragons would have been the time period because I was in high school during that big 80s thing. But uh, it, it kind of makes me say, oh, that's what the popularity of the, the whole uh, attraction is to it there. I, I kind of get that idea now. Yeah, I think a lot of people are discovering that. For, I think people get it in their head that they they hear about Dungeons & Dragons or they hear about role-playing games and they go, oh, I don't know how that works, so I don't want to do it. And you're like, look, no one knows how to do it until they try, right? And they also feel this sense of, well, it's a game, so there are rules, and I don't know the rules, so I can't do it effectively. And the reality is it's much easier than even most board games and things because in a board game, you do kind of need to know most of the rules in order to functionally play through the game effectively, right? Yeah. But here, because we're telling a story together, I need you to bring your enthusiasm and your imagination into this process. And then I'll tell you, roll these dice. If you roll high, that's good. Do you know what I mean? Or I'll say, here's the particular rule for this spell or this thing that you're doing. We're working together to collaborate to make this thing. So you can't fail particularly in the sense of you're going to lose the game. Even if you die, if your character dies in the story, you can make that a heroic death or an exciting, memorable story to be told. And that's kind of the point of the thing. And it's not about winning or it's not about beating everyone else who plays. It's we're all in this together and we're discovering this thing as it goes along. And like improvisational theater, what you do and what you choose changes what everyone else is going to do and the decisions they're going to make. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real organic quality to someone will you go into a town with your group of adventurers and someone says something, just an offhanded comment that turns into a whole course of action that turns into an hour worth of play and everyone's laughing and having a fun time at the table. And maybe that wasn't the original plan that the dungeon master had, but everyone just had a great time. So we all win. Do you know what I mean? And that's very much the attitude to take into it. And I think that those kinds of, if you, if you key into a game with the right kinds of players and they have that free form attitude of we're all here to have a great time. Let's all just dig in and do this thing. You're going to, you're going to find a lot of great memories get built up over it. You know, when I was a kid, I started playing um, role-playing games with my older brother, specifically D&D, &D, and then other tabletop games as well. And it became a way for us to communicate with each other. You know, um, the classic kind of older brother scenario where 
he's got his own friends and his own things that he's doing and I want to have a relationship with him and we're at that age where we're awkward to each other. But at the gaming table, I had a voice and I could come up with funny ideas and make him laugh. And it became a real shared thing for the two of us and, and you know, lifelong memories. It also instilled in me a desire to want to tell stories and make characters and be uh, an active participant in storytelling. Like I've told the people at Dungeons and Dragons that I wouldn't be a comic writer today if it wasn't for D&D. So um, to me, it feels like almost full circle to be able to write properties like Pathfinder, like Dungeons and Dragons and Conan, because that's the stuff I grew up on. And it had such an important influence in my life. It's kind of reminded me of the do what you love, love what you do concept. Um, for, for those that are not familiar with, and that would include myself, what's the significance of the term or the name Skull Kickers and also the um, the first, if I got this right, comic that you did, which was uh, Makeshift Miracle? So um, Makeshift Miracle was my first creator-owned comic, and that was a web comic that I did from 2001 to 2003. Um, I've gone through these sort of periods of fandom with comics, like when I was you know, I'd say eight to around 16 years old, I was obsessed with Marvel superheroes and stuff like that. And then eventually I would get into more indie stuff, um, Vertigo books. I would, I, I went through a phase where I was reading a lot of manga before that was kind of like heavily translated and, and as prevalent in North America. And then web comics, when I was in college, um, our college had a, a, a high speed internet connection, which at the time was not the norm. And so I was on the web a lot and I was seeing that there were people publishing their own comics online. Most of them were like, um, kind of comic strip style. So they were three or four panel or six panel gag strips. And some of them would have ongoing narratives, but most of them were very much in that vein of Calvin and Hobbes or Garfield, but sometimes with a more techie bent or a geeky bent. Um, and I was, I didn't know how to get into traditional publishing, but I could I understood how to make a basic web page. And so I made my own web comic and did that for like over two years. And it was a way for me to keep creative and make my own story. And so that story I made called the makeshift miracle was influenced a lot by, by the, by manga, by a bunch of um, kind of indie books that I had read and by some of the web comic stuff that I was reading at the time. Skull Kickers, on the other hand, was sort of a throwback to very much me at age 8 to 10 playing D&D with my brother. So it's like big slam-bam kind of slapstick action, uh, over-the-top kind of fantasy stuff. If, if, if Lord of the Rings is high fantasy because it's like magic and destiny and, and the greater you know, fate of the world, then stuff like Conan the Barbarian or, or Skull Kickers to me is low fantasy. It's like characters who are just trying to eke out their survival or they're up against odds and monsters and things that are so much bigger than them that they have no hope of defeating it. But if they can survive and get, you know, move on in their adventures, then they're successful. So they're very much a pulp mindset to the kind of fantasy that I love and the kind of stuff that I was trying to instill into skull kickers. And the title even has that feel. These guys kick skulls. That's their, they kill monsters for money they're morally ambiguous and, and, you know, carving their way across this fantasy world. Yeah, I wasn't sure initially to to think of it as a tongue-in-cheek term, skull kickers, or perhaps these guys are badass or whatever, you know. Oh, they're badass. They're also, like, they have moments of utter incompetence because 
they're good at, at killing monsters and they're good at selling stuff for money, but anything outside of that purview they struggle with. So there's a storyline where because they've killed a huge monster, they get rewarded by this, you know, kingdom and they have to go to the to the high court and have a dinner party. Well, these guys are you don't want them at your dinner party. They're uncouth monsters and bastards and terrible, you know, uh uh just jerks. And so that's sort of a fun storyline where these guys have to dress up in noble finery and they have to sit at the table and they don't know which fork they use for salads and all that kind of stuff because they're so out of their element, you know, they're just desperately trying to get out of that situation and, and go kill stuff. No manners. Got to keep cleaning up after them. They're just a mess. That's right. That's right. Now, you mentioned earlier about your influence with manga and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Back at uh, Dynamite, you had done a one-shot of uh, Red Sonja and Cub, and I'm going to assume that the end Cub is an homage to Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, so originally, um, I think the, the Red Sonja and Cub title was added later. Um, I got approached by an editor at Dynamite who liked the other fancy stuff I had done, and they, they have the license for Red Sonja, and so they wanted to have a story where Sonya went east to Katai. Now, in the Hyborian Age, which is the, the lands of Conan and Red Sonya, Katai is on the far east shore, and it's very much kind of a melange of China, Japan, Korea, you know, Thailand, like everything in the sort of Asiatic sphere. But it's not just a one-to-one kind of comparison. It, it's little bits and pieces with its own kind of monsters and mythology mixed in as well. And so they knew that um, I had quite a love for those sorts of things and that I was into it, and I had a bit of uh, knowledge of, of, you know, Eastern mythology, and would I be interested in writing that kind of story? So I put together a proposal for them. I think the original title for it might have been called Honor Bound, and then we struck on this idea because um, Red Song is protecting this young girl that it, that it had a lone wolf and cub feel, that you had a child and this warrior, and that they were traversing across the land. And so uh, it was a really fun project to put together. Um, I think I want to say, oh, the artist was Kevin Lau. He did an awesome job on it. It was a really, really uh, great-looking book. And it's a crazy violent story and lots of, of kind of political intrigue between these kingdoms. Uh, it was a it was a blast to put together, and it was just another kind of, um, you know, mark on 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 the board to show people that I did sword and sorcery well, that I understood the material, and that I could kind of deliver on that kind of action front. Just jumping now, back, I was going to say, Jim, to um, 2016 when it looks like you started getting involved with Marvel and I see Thunderbolts. Um, mm-hmm. That was, I guess, after the hundred and something issues had originally happened, if I got the time frame right. And what I was oh, going to yeah, say. I think that's the third, I want to say the third or fourth Thunderbolts series. Okay. Was there any, um, I don't know if there's any thought in your head when you've seen that a run of a comic title has gone so long and you, and you're being a task to do this project and you may be worrying about, well, I hope I can continue in the mindset of, you know, these characters and, and continue along, or does that not even come into play? You just, all right, let's go. Here we are. I mean, it's a big part of it. That was my first regular Marvel gig. And so uh, it meant a lot to me. I grew up on Marvel comics and superheroes, and I was so 
nervous in a good way about, you know, creating new pieces of the Marvel Universe. So I did read literally every issue of Thunderbolts before I started working on the book. Um, I pitched, I read a handful of them again, because I'd read them when they first came out. And then I um, pitched my idea for the series and how we were going to take it. But then once I got the green light to go ahead, while I was writing my first couple scripts, I was also deep diving in terms of research on all the characters. Because I, one of the things I love about the Marvel Universe is that deep continuity, that as crazy as it is as a compressed series of time, that these stories have happened. And if we can do elegant ways of calling back to them and making it feel like it matters and that it happened and that the characters are continually growing, that's the reason why readers stick around. And that's why they continue to come back is because their favorite characters are constantly changing and surprising them. And characters that they didn't follow before become interesting to them, and they can go back and discover their their journey, you know? And that's why um, research is such an important part of, for me, writing at Marvel, uh, writing the superhero stuff in particular. When I take on a new project, I'm always doing these deep dives of reading. And now, as an ongoing Marvel writer, one of the things, one of the advantages we have is um, editorial will send us PDFs of all the comics that are coming out about three to four weeks from now. And so on a constant weekly basis, I'm getting, you know, uh, a fresh kind of injection of, of what else is happening in the Marvel universe. And that spurs on my own ideas and reminds me of the connectivity of all these characters. Nice. And going back over to Red Sonia, by the way, one of the things that I want to know about is with the character, what is it like working on a character that has such a long storied history, especially not, you know, in comics, but in just in general. Well, I think, you know, whether, like I've written a bunch of characters who have uh, deep continuities, whether that's Red Sonja or Conan, um, I've done some Avengers writing, you know, even, even some of the characters on Thunderbolts, hundreds of issues under their belt. I think it's, it's exciting. It's a real honor to be able to add to that character's ongoing story. But part of that is about figuring out what are the qualities that are at the core of them. And not just what someone else thinks, but what you think is most important about those characters. So part of that research reading for me is about connecting into what those broader themes are or speech patterns or attitudes. And in some cases, you know, characters change quite a bit over the years. Some writers take real deep turns with the character and take them in different directions. So the more I read up on them, the more I'm able to sort of get an aggregate view and kind of go, okay, every so often the character will act like this. But on the whole, this is what seems to be true about them, or this is what speaks to me as the writer. How can I bring those sorts of things, or what kind of questions gets raised as I read these books, and what can I do to inject some of that into my storytelling, whether that's specifically calling back old stories or just the overall feeling of what those stories evoke, you know? Now, on top of the work that you've done with Red Sonja, one of the things that's kind of cool is you got to do a Red Sonja book, and one of your early Conan stories was the Conan Red Sonja miniseries back when Dark mm -hmm. Horse had the license. What was it like doing that story? Um, for me, that was a real dream come true. That was my first time writing Conan. And I got to team up with Gail Simone, 
we got to do the first team up between those two characters in, I think, I want to say 15 years. And we wanted to make it feel like a self-contained thing, that whether or not you'd ever read a Conan story or a Red Sonja story, you could read this thing, jump in, get a real classic sword and sorcery feel, while at the same time still acknowledging the legacy of, of who these characters are. Um, it was intimidating, but it was such a cool opportunity, and I was so happy to be a part of it. Gail had the brilliant idea, because one of the toughest things early on, we were discussing, well, what era of the characters do you want to work with? Because you could do them in their young and kind of impetuous days or in their prime or when they're older, when you have King Conan, you know, when you have like Red Sonja, the, the warlord and, and stuff like that. So how do you how do you choose? And Gail's solution was we don't have to choose. We'll tell a story that spans hmm. the whole time. So we'll have something that they did in their youth comes back to haunt them in their prime they think that they've destroyed it, but then it comes back one more time when they're, you know, in their kind of twilight years or whatever you want to call it. And so it was a really elegant solution. So then we didn't have to pick our favorites. We could kind of play with all the toys and show this bigger legacy of their adventures. And it was just an awesome thing. Uh, Dan uh, Panosian drew the living heck out of it. It was just a gorgeous looking book. Uh, it was such a cool um, thing. One of the things that was funny was the scripting process was really unique in the sense that Gail and I would pick different scenes and we would script them out. And the first issue script got done and we sort of Frankenstein monster our finished script and then we're making adjustments to it so that it reads smoothly. And I quickly realized that Gail doesn't by default put sound effects into her scripts and I always put them in there. So all of a sudden you would have pages where, you know, on her pages, there would be no sword clashing sound. And on mine, I'd have all the clang, clang, bang, bang. And I was like, okay, well, we got to figure out which one we're doing of these two. Otherwise, it's going to read like crazy, you know. Um, but those are the kind of funny things, the problem solving and the, and the stuff that comes up when you collaborate is you realize everyone has different methodologies for how they work, you know. Well, with the research, again, going back to that question um, with Red Sonia. Do you, Jim, just go back to the comic aspect of what's come before? And that's a whole litany of stuff there. But I, I just remembered that I also have a series of about five or six Red Sonja novels that came out, I think, in the early 80s or so. And, you know, no pictures, just an art, just a, an artful painting on the front cover of each little right. hundred or so 25-page book. Or that's, that's different material. It's a different medium. You don't have to bother with that. Well, for Conan, I definitely go back to the source. Robert E. Howard wrote the original Conan stories, and those are, I mean, they're kind of the bedrock of sword and sorcery fiction. Sure. And his ability to paint a picture and create texture is amazing. Now, Red Sonja is a really unique prospect because the character that we know of in the comics is not a literary character originally, so she's a, a weird kind of mix of two different Robert E. Howard characters, one who's called Sonia and another one that is called Dark Agnes. She has the attitude kind of a Dark uh, Agnes. She's got some of the, the visual qualities and, and uh, elements of, of Sonia from, but in a different time period. And uh, the, I think Roy Thomas was the one who brought that character into the comics to create a female foil for Conan. So she is actually a comic character in her origin. So for her, I tend to stick with the comic reading for research. With Conan, I went deeper into the Howard canon because that's really the, the, 
the root of the thing. Well, along with the classic, you know, Roy Thomas comics, because he was very much um, building on that base as well. Now, in last year, you were responsible for bringing Conan the Barbarian into the main Marvel continuity. So he mm. coexists in a world alongside characters like the Avengers, like the Guardians of the Galaxy, like Howard the Duck, which <laughs> I admit I would love to see that pairing so bad. That would be so twisted. Just so many different things. How did that come about? And, yeah. So it was a really interesting uh, challenge. What had happened was I had done a run on Thunderbolts. It had gone well. I uh, stepped over to take over Uncanny Avengers, and I uh, did that for a handful of issues. All the Avengers books, there were like three different Avengers titles at that time, and they were collapsing down into one title. And when that happened, my editor wanted us to make it an event. And so the, the concept for this weekly comic series called no, eventually called No Surrender was put together. It was Mark Wade and Al Ewing and I wrote this epic 16-part story. It went really well. We had an absolute blast. It was one of the most enjoyable projects of my entire career. And that led to a sequel weekly Avengers event called No Road Home. When we sat down to start building that story, Tom Brevoort, my editor, said, I've got an interesting possible challenge for you guys. And this was still on the down low. It wasn't publicly announced yet. He said, Marvel's getting the rights to Conan the Barbarian back. I think it would be cool to involve him in this story. And my first reaction was almost like revulsion, like, oh, God, this is gonna, <laughs> we're going to screw this up. This is going to suck. And then I was like, well, they're going to do this. And I have a deep love of this character. How can we make this work as cool as possible? How can we make this feel like classic sword and sorcery and involve the character in a way that's fun and interesting and still give him his own space that he doesn't feel like he's getting overwhelmed by whatever the vision and, and you know, Hercules and all these other characters in the story. Um, and so I start to build around this core idea of in the center of our Avengers story, there's your classic kind of sword and sorcery quest. And one of the characters is going to get deposited in the Hyborian age and Conan has to help them survive. And then I went, well, go to your classic kind of visual, your Frazetta, you know, the beautiful woman sorceress and, and Conan, the warrior. And I was like, well, okay, it's got to be the Scarlet Witch. So we got to have the witch and the warrior. This will be really classic and cool. Um, and we just sort of built out from that, that kind of classic visual and made it all work. At the end of that story, we decided we were going to deposit Conan in the Savage Land. So now he's in a place that feels very much like his, um, you know, like the Hyborian Age equivalent, and he's got somewhere to survive and to travel and to do cool stuff. From there, uh, the other people ran with the ball. So Jerry Dugan has got a series he's writing now called Savage Avengers, where Conan is teaming up with other characters. But I think it's important to keep in mind that there's still your classic Conan the Barbarian series running, and that doesn't include Marvel superheroes, and it's not a crossover book. That Savage Avengers is kind of its own, if you will, its own kind of Conan continuity. Like what we did with No Road Home and plucking Conan out of the time stream, if you will, the regular Hyborian age continues, and Conan is still there. This this version of Conan is off doing crazy stuff with whoever. He's going to meet Black Panther and he's going to, you know, fight with uh, uh, Doctor Strange or fight against Doctor Doom or whatever. But I think it's 
that's a fun experiment and a cool thing to do, just as long as you keep that core series still the way that we expected, that classic pure sort of sword and sorcery storytelling. And so, if, uh, you know, once you have your Conan the Barbarian series, then you can go off and do other experimental stuff on the side. In the same way that they did back in the day, there were like two what-if issues where Conan was running around the Marvel Universe. And, you know, there's been hints that in the Marvel Universe, the Hyborian Age is actually part of uh, the Marvel Universe's past. And so it does weirdly kind of connect together. There's all sorts of fun stuff like that. Wow. On the topic of the uh, what-if Marvel books involving Conan the Barbarian, I know of a person who frequents our local comic book shop, and he always has to bring up the panel of Conan the Barbarian holding a gun. And I yeah. don't know why, but he always has to bring that up, which, hey, more power to him, I guess. But. It's a weird stuff. Like, uh, you know, the anachronism of, of Conan wielding a gun or being in a big city or, or stuff like that, I think there's, you know, the, the classic kind of fish-out-of-water storytelling element, and it can be fun, but just as long as you're not constantly making Conan a fool. Like, I know because of the stereotypes that have grown out of Conan as a character, people think of him as slow or dim-witted because of the, that, that, that iconic stereotype is built up. But in the original stories and in the, the Howard writing, He's actually quite a, he's a survivor, and he's quite smart. He's instinctive, and he's able to read people and read situations quite well. He's not a dullard. He is strong, and he is tough, and he is obstinate and, and um, stubborn, but not to the point of getting himself killed. You know what I mean? And that's a, a thing that I try and keep true when I'm writing that character. Just because the sort of cliche, I think, that's built up in people's minds, the stereotype of, you know, um, the, the dim-witted barbarian is not the actual canon of the character. He would not have made it this far, this many years, since, what, the very late 60s until now, if he was dumb. That's right. You know, this he has survived hundreds and hundreds of adventures with, uh, with instinct and, uh, you know, and, and iron will. And one of the adventures that had happened recently was one that you had penned and it involves my favorite Mooney boy, Moon Knight, the Serpent War. Oh, yeah. How did that yeah. come about? Who proposed Moon Knight? And who do I thank for that? Uh, thanks. Uh, Serpent War was such a cool opportunity. So I had done, um, you know, I had done the Conan Red Sonia crossover. I did um, No Road Home, and we brought Conan to the Marvel Universe. And every time, like with, with the Conan Red Sonia, I thought, well, this is my only chance to write Conan. And then No Road Home, I'm like, well, this is my second chance, probably my last chance to write Conan. And then um, once they, you know, had the regular series going, I had approached the editor of the Conan books, and I said, I would love to write the character solo if there's ever a chance for me to pitch you, uh, 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 you know, a short story, let me know. And we banded some ideas back and forth, and I had this crazy idea to put Conan in this, like, high-stakes gambling hall in a, in a city. And so we did this three-part story for Savage Sword of Conan called Conan the Gambler. And people really liked it. And, it, and it, um, the Conan properties, people really liked it. It was a ton of fun. It was my first chance to write the character all by myself and sort of show my, you know, kind of flex a little bit, like this is what I think a classic Conan story should be. And that gave Marvel and the Conan properties people a lot of confidence in my ability to write the character. And so Marvel was actively negotiating to get the rights to the other Robert E. Howard characters, characters like Solomon Kane and Dark Agnes and Cole the Conqueror and all that stuff. 
And so the idea set, it came that when they were looking to sign the license, we don't just want to put these characters out in their own solo books. No one will care, or if they've never read them before, they won't feel any desire to check them out. We need to create excitement. What if we did some sort of event or crossover? And I was on their list of people to approach, and they asked me if I had some ideas, and I started um, kind of brainstorming a bunch of things. And then they said, it would be cool if we injected some piece of the Marvel Universe, some character and we talked about who would be a good fit. You know, what medieval sword and sorcery or mystical character would be a good fit. And we struck upon the idea of using Moon Knight. And that um, the common threat between all these characters could be set. You know, the snake god. And particularly when you've got the, the moon god Khonshu and all that stuff. Using another Egyptian god made sense. And of course, set is so intrinsic to a lot of the evil and stuff that happens against Conan. And all of a sudden it just started to gel. Like we realized the connective tissue between these things could make it feel very um, natural and we could do all sorts of cool stuff. And so being able to cross over Solomon Kane, Dark Agnes, you know, Moon Knight, Conan the Barbarian, and this relatively obscure character from the Robert E. Howard canon uh, called James Allison. And he is a, a really fascinating character because he's, arguably one of the first meta characters of literary canon. He, um, he's essentially a stand-in for Robert E. Howard himself. He's a writer who's living in rural Texas who is like depressed and dying in, in, a, in a bed. He's got a fever and he's having these lucid waking nightmares. And he's not just dreaming things randomly. He's actually reliving past lives. And those past lives are all connected to him. And Robert E. Howard was a guy who had a lot of depressive issues, who lived in rural Texas, who was an author, who would talk about the fact that when he was writing these stories, he felt like they were pouring out of him. That, that you know, not that he thought the Hyborian Age was real, but that it had a real visceral quality to it. And so James Allison became our kind of Robert E. Howard, summoning all these characters together for this epic quest to fight the snake god. And uh, the way that all plays out is full of cool twists and turns, and it was an absolute joy to put together. And it became even more special because about midway through production on it, I found out, like, the, they let me know that uh, Jason Aaron was going to be stepping down from the main Conan the Barbarian series, and so the opportunity was there for me to be able to step in and take over the monthly book. Mm. And now I'm the writer of Conan the Barbarian, and whenever I say that, I get a big smile on my face because um, I love that book so much, you know, growing up. And now and now I get to be a part of it, you know, more so. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's just it's a real joy. One of the one of my best memories last year in the convention season was I did Paris Comic Con in France um, and Roy Thomas was there. You know, Roy Thomas is such a milestone pillar of, of Marvel history and his contribution to Conan the Barbarian. He's written hundreds of stories. He wrote all the original comics. He was editor-in-chief of Marvel for a while. Um, he's such an amazing guy, and I never met him. I've been doing the con circuit now for years, but I've never had a chance to meet him. And I realized he was at the show, and I was like, man, I really got to gotta meet him in person. And um, he was delightful. We had an amazing conversation. He had written a couple recent Savage Sword of Conan issues that took that came out after mine, and he said, you know, I read Conan the Gambler and I really liked it. And I people will say that, and you're like, did they really read it? And he mentioned specific story stuff 
And I was like, oh my God, he really read it. He liked it. <laughs> like that's like the best vote of confidence. And I said, uh, you know, Mr. Thomas, and he goes, oh, call me Roy. And I was like, Roy, you know, I, um, it's not public yet, but I'm, I'm taking over the monthly book. I'm taking over Conan the Barbarian. And he looked at me with this really warm look and he like patted me on the shoulder and he goes, welcome to the fraternity. And I was like, man, like if you would have told my 10 year old self that this was happening, you know, what a cool, what an amazing thing. And uh, it was just so, he was so warm and amazing. We got a great photo together and I can't tell you how, how much that meant to me, that kind of vote of confidence and that excitement that he has to this day, you know, for the character and for comics as a whole. Both of us, Peter and I can attest to that too, having met the man several times and yes, so warm and uh, alive and animated and stuff. You know, when we got to, to talk to him for the first time, I think at one of the cons and found out about his, um, was it the Netflix daredevil series that he had a role in and that kind of stuff. He was, he was a prison inmate. Yeah. Oh, really? He's in uh, season three. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't even know that. There you go. That's amazing. And one of the things about Roy also is just that I've heard stories that he'll be at a convention and afterwards people are, you know, going out to dinner. He'll walk up to random people that were at the convention and just strike up conversation with them about comics and unprovoked. It's cool that he has that much of a passion of the art form that is comics. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, originally I was going to be going to a thing they call Howard days, which is like a Robert E. Howard little book festival for fans of the author that takes place in cross plains, Texas, which is where he, you know, lives. Um, and that was supposed to be happening in June and they've had to cancel it with all the, uh, coronavirus stuff. And Roy was going to be there and I was really looking forward to hanging out, but we're going to be rain checking it and hopefully I'll be able to make whatever revised dates they come out with. Uh, cause it would be amazing to spend that time and, and, you know, see the, the hardcore kind of Conan fandom there. Well, I think that kind of segs into, Jim, a, a speculative question sort of now, provided that things get better sooner than later. Sure. What are you anticipating, if it's going to happen, if they're going to happen, um, going to Conwise or otherwise uh, later this year? Um, it's hard to say. Like, normally, my typical convention schedule is quite packed. Like, I would be at San Diego or I would be at – I do Gen Con every year plans to do more international shows this summer, but obviously with the way things are right now, that's not currently in the cards. On top of that, one of the things that is going on, like I said, you know, you are going to be doing, you are doing Conan the Barbarian right now is the main title. What can we expect to see? Not so much spoilers, but what could we be seeing in the very near future with your run? Um, so for me, it's like with any long running character, and particularly with characters that have got such a huge canon of stories, you want to try and make it feel classic, but you also need to be able to push out into areas so that it doesn't also tread the same ground too heavily over and over again. And so there's areas of the Hyborian Age, we were talking about Katai earlier, uh, where Conan has barely ever traveled. And so I'm the character may be very, you know, kind of set in his ways, but if we can put him into new environments or put him up against new threats, that's where you can get some real excitement or you can surprise readers with um, the twists and turns of the thing. And so we've got the character traveling a part of the Hyborian Age that he hasn't gone to very much or if ever, and we're able to build out kind of the canon of those areas, you know, different mythologies and different creatures and different kinds of threats that he's never had to overcome before. And so that's part of what it is for me is like taking a little corner of, 
that map and kind of blowing it out and, and making our own little cool places to go and new threats to put them up against. That's a big part of what I want to do with my run. Now, before we wrap this episode up, we want to first off say thank you for doing the show today and speaking with us. My absolute pleasure. A lot of good stuff there. Thank you, Jim. A lot of good stuff. We appreciate it. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. Now, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on the worldwide interwebs? So I've got sort of a hub website. It's just jimzub.com. So it's www.jimzub.com. And that's really the, the site where you can find everything about me. So it's got previews of my books and interviews, links to all my the books I've done, you know, I've written over the last 10 to 12 years. Um, it's also a spot for tutorials. So I post up articles about how to write comics, how to pitch your own comic book stories to publishers, some of the economics of how the comic book industry works that people have found really helpful over the years. And so it's, uh, it's all kinds of information there. On social media, the easiest place is probably Twitter. It's just at Jim Zub. People ask me questions or post photos of this, you know, the, the books that they picked up or things like that. I'm constantly talking about Conan the Barbarian and fantasy stuff, superhero stuff, and uh, you know, role-playing games. Well, one so thing we didn't uh, uh, mention, it's Jim, all, is it's all the stuff. Yeah. The other thing that you do too, and I'm not sure how much of a time commitment that is, is your role as an art instructor. Yeah. So I've been teaching now for. Oh my gosh, um, about 16 years at an art college here in Toronto called Seneca. Um, they do all sorts of different courses. I teach in their animation program, so that, that training that I got back in the day is still used you know, every week as I train students to draw and tell stories and things like that. So my comic writing career sort of runs in parallel. Um, it's an exciting time for me because uh, in about a month, I'm going to be taking a professional sabbatical and focusing just on my writing for the next almost a year and a half. So I'm going to just be hunkering down and doing um, just writing. But the teaching stuff has been really valuable to me. It's a, a great way to um, continually kind of refresh that battery. The students that come in the door are so excited about the art form and they're excited about telling stories and showing them the basics and giving them the tools to, to make their own stuff and then seeing them go off and be successful in animation, in movies and comics and things like that just constantly reminds me about my own excitement for what I do. And so um, it's a real intrinsic part of, of who I am. And even though I'm taking this break, I don't suspect I'm going to be away from it for too long because I find the teaching stuff really enjoyable. Well, congratulations, Jim, on all your work and lots of continued success. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, working on all this stuff that meant so much to me as a kid and now getting to contribute to it as an adult it, uh, it, it keeps me young, i got to be honest. It's really nice. For The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jim Zub. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!